now begin our consideration of chapter 3, verses 4 to 10, in our Bible lessons from the first epistle of John. We shall occupy ourselves for three broadcasts with lessons from this profound and yet simple passage. We read these words, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. We notice three essential lines of instruction in this passage. First, on the pathway of sin. Then, on the advent and the atonement of Christ. And finally, on the pathway of salvation or reconciliation to God. We now consider the first of these three, namely, the pathway of sin. And we have in verse 4 a most important declaration. It is a voluntary state of lawlessness, or a living in the transgression of the moral law of God, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, or as in this verse 4, which we may render as follows. Everyone who is continually doing or practicing the sin, also the lawlessness is continually doing or practicing. And the sin is the lawlessness. The word sin conveys the idea of missing the mark, and thus we must enlarge upon what the mark is that God intends man to attain before we can understand what sin is. We must understand whether this mark is reasonable or not, and whence this expression of obligation originated. First we say that before man chose to rebel against his loving Creator and live in the sphere of sinful rebellion, man's conscience, under a state of enlightenment, was a law unto himself. In other words, if he would consult his own inner thinking, he would follow a right course toward God and toward man. Man had within his own heart, then, the enlightenment sufficient to guide his pathway. But when sin entered into his heart, God had to withdraw his direct manifestation to man. And thus, step by step, the conscience became dimmed and no longer was an accurate description of obligation. Thus it became necessary for God to utter forth in verbal expression that description of the life that would be pleasing to God and would be a blessing to man. And so the giving of the law proceeded from the loving desire of God to bless man by defining that right conduct which would bring happiness. 
We have, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, these words. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? This is certainly a pertinent statement, is it not? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. How important it is to notice these last three verses, that the giving of lawful or verbal expression of obligation on the part of God was for man's good by defining that pathway of life which would alone result in man's happiness. Then in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17, we have the account of the Ten Commandments or the moral law. God's reasonable description of that attitude toward God and man, apart from which happiness is impossible, is a summary of the very nature of this valuable description that God gave to man. We may summarize it quickly thus. We have the first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, which forbids every form of mental idolatry. Then the second commandment prohibits the making and worshiping of images. The third commandment is against false swearing, blasphemy, and the irreverent use of the name of God, where we have the words, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The fourth commandment, is against the profanation of the Sabbath and against idleness. The fifth commandment has to do with honoring our father and our mother. The sixth commandment against murder. The seventh against adultery. The eighth against stealing. The ninth against false witness. And the tenth against covetousness in all aspects of life. Now certainly... These summarize man's obligation toward God and toward man, apart from which no state of happiness on the part of God with man or on the part of man with God and with his fellow men can possibly exist. The moral law is therefore a reasonable law and could not be otherwise. It did not originate basically in the will of God but in the mind of God. Truly, the will of God gave expression to it, but it was merely a drawing forth of those principles which reside in the great mind of God. We have in Exodus 24, 3, the assertion on the part of the people, which goes as follows, all the words which the Lord hath said we will do. So evidently, the people thought they could obey the reasonable commands of God. And so with Moses as recorded in the fifth chapter of Deuteronomy, where we have these words, that ye may learn to keep them and do them. So evidently Moses thought that the people could observe the reasonable commands of God. The Lord Jesus reduced these Ten Commandments down to two aspects or attitudes or relations. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 40, a certain lawyer asked this question, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. 
Notice the importance of the word thy. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. We have a similar account in Luke 10, verses 26 and 27. And so we see that the Lord Jesus reduced the Ten Commandments into a twofold attitude, one toward God and one toward man. The Apostle Paul, by inspiration, reduced the twofold attitude to a single disposition of love, as recorded in Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Again in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Thus, if one has an attitude of love toward God and toward man, he will behave himself rightly toward God and toward man. And thus, the one attitude of love can be expanded into a twofold attitude, one toward God and one toward man, which can be further expanded into four commandments toward God and six commandments toward man. And so we are impressed by the reasonableness of God's wonderful law. And thus sin is a revolt against the principle of love in favor of the principle of selfishness. It is a refusal to comply with God's reasonable demands as founded in intelligence and in no sense is arbitrary. It is a single permeating attitude singled out by the article the. And thus we have this summarizing statement, the sin is the lawlessness. But in this passage in 1 John, we have other remarks concerning this matter of sin. In chapter 3, verse 6, we read, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. So thus we remark that those living in or practicing sin have no spiritual insight into the life and atoning death of Christ. They do not understand the principle nor the need for his advent, nor do they have any personal acquaintance with the Lord Jesus Christ in his wonderful resurrection glory. What a sacrifice it is to continue in sin. Then in verse 8 we read, He that committeth sin is of the devil. So to practice sin is to be in league with Satan, the originator of sin. Our Lord Jesus said concerning Satan in John 8:44 these words, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Thus it is a tragic fact that those who are in the principle of selfishness are in league with Satan's principle of selfishness. Now we must not think that Satan is in favor of immorality or the base things of life, for the scripture portrays him as the most profound intelligence that God has ever created. 
and thus he delights in intellectual selfishness. And so those who are pursuing this course in whatever realm they are, are in line with his principles. In verse 10, we read, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. So we see that there is such a thing as being a child of Satan's kingdom. Then in the last part of verse 10, we read, Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. So the practice of sin is a state of unrighteousness, or a wrong attitude toward God and toward man. No wonder the Lord Jesus and the advocates of the glorious gospel insist that man should repent of his sin and be reconciled to God through faith in the atoning death of Christ. Our Heavenly Father, how lamentable it is that sin has entered thy glorious domain, but how we thank thee that thou hast made a remedy through the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and how we pray that many may this day respond to thy loving overtures of mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.